So welcome to the first episode of the Birding Life podcast. This has been something that's been in my heart for a long time to do. So I'm so excited that it's finally becoming a reality. And what I'm really excited about is the lineup of guests that we have coming up. The guests that have agreed to come on the show are some of the biggest names in both South African and international birding. And as we launch the first podcast today, I'm excited that one of South Africa's best known birders has agreed to be my guest. This is the man who so many people know through the daily rare bird emails that comes into thousands of birders inboxes, Mr. Trevor Hardeke. But before we get into part one of Trevor's interview, I'm proud that this podcast is associated with BirdLife Port Natal, a bird club that covers the greater Etiquini area in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. So I'm going to have a chat with Nicolette Forbes about what the club has been up to during the lockdown in South Africa. And straight after that, we will go straight to Trevor's interview. Okay, I want to welcome Nicolette Forbes, the chair of BirdLife Port Natal. So how has lockdown been for you? Uh, Adam, lockdown's actually been fine from our personal perspective, but we are one of the lucky ones that has a wonderful garden and birds and butterflies to amuse us during this time. And how many species have you got in your garden since it started? Um, I think we are sitting on 62 at the moment, um, but I haven't looked at the list since we did the week three summary, but it was sitting at 62 when I last looked. And how big is your garden? You don't have a, you don't have a massive garden. No, we're in a complex, so we've got about 600 square meters, and that includes the footprint of the house. And we have what we have done, which has made a real difference, is planted indigenous plants, trees. And so we've got quite a jungle in our complex garden, much to the probably unhappiness of our neighbors every now and again. So yeah, Nicolette, we really are excited to be associating this podcast with BirdLife Port Natal. So where a lot of people have maybe been taking the just relaxing a little bit. The club has not been inactive during the lockdown and the club has been doing a lockdown challenge. So can you tell us a little, little bit about that lockdown challenge? How many birds have been seen, species that have been seen, possibly also how people can get involved? Okay, thanks, Adam. But first, thank you for um, associating the, the podcast with the club. BirdLife Court Natal has been around for 71 years, but we'll get to that, I think, in some of the, the later podcasts. What um, has been wonderful is that because we have got a fairly large membership, we have invited people to participate while they are locked down in their home bases or wherever their lockdown place is to get a look outside, whether it be from a, a patio, a balcony, or in their garden, if they're lucky enough to have a garden, and count the birds that are around them, start looking carefully at what's around them, and submitting lists to us in a competition. And they do that weekly. Our competition has now been extended to match the lockdown closure date of the 31st of the 30th of April. So it's going to be interesting to see what comes of the end of it. We've got about 59 households participating at the moment, and we have been in lockdown for 25 days. So for the moment, we've seen 232 bird species, which is quite an incredible yeah. record. That's a third of KwaZulu-Natal's bird species, or just over a third of our species we find in the whole of KwaZulu-Natal. And what would you say have been some of the, the better species that have been seen? What are some of the highlights? Okay, there have been some highlights. What is probably important to point out is that 
although we've got 59 households counting, the average plot size that of people participating is somewhere between, I suppose, my 600 and 1,300 square meters. So an average sort of urban affluent neighborhood plot. We are only covering about 85,000 square meters of KZN. And the highlights have included raptors, surprising us, so birds of prey. We've even just recently had a, a juvenile marshal eagle fly over Pine Town, or we spotted flying over Pine Town. There have been a, a number of different things. Honey guards turning up in people's gardens. We've always known there's been lesser honey guard, but scaly throated is turning up with increasing frequency as people turn out and, and look at their home patches. And then we've had lots of Fire finches, again, surprisingly, we've had all three of the mannequin species that we get. Most people will be familiar with bronze mannequin, but we've also had red-backed and magpie mannequins turning up. So there's been quite a few surprises, and the list is quite extensive. But we do have people looking from Zululand right through to the urban areas in Durban. I think it's just been nice from my side, becoming a little bit more aware of what's actually in my garden. I've been quite surprised with a lot of the species that have shown up. And that's, I think that's been exciting for all of us who are part of the challenge is just to grow our awareness of what, what's right on our doorstep. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. Um, what has, there's been two things for me that have come out of it. Firstly, in, in many ways, it's pulled us, our membership, much closer together. People are talking to others that they've never spoken to before. So although it's been electronic, people are getting to know one another so from a point of view of, a, of being part of a birding family, that's definitely come out. And I've had that comment come back to us from members. But the most important thing about this was to get people outside and looking and realizing just how valuable their own backyards can be. And I'm hoping that it will, as people realize that some people are seeing more than others, that they'll start questioning why that is and that this will also encourage indigenous planting mm. and a different way of operating in your garden, the use of pesticides, the use of herbicides being a big factor in eliminating the food supply of these birds, particularly the insectivores, and then those species not being present in people's gardens. So can people still get involved in the challenge? Adam, yes. If people would like to submit their lists and become part of it and get the news, they are most welcome to do so. There is an email address where they can send their lists and uh, a request to join. And that is LBC for Lockdown Bird Count, LBC at blpn.org. The prizes are only for BirdLife Port Natal members. So they're the only ones that are able to compete for the prizes. But if anybody just wants to join for the fun of it, then everybody is welcome. And that's members and non-members. So... I'd be quite happy for people to join at this stage. We still do have another almost two weeks in lockdown, so there's plenty of time. Most people get the bulk of their birds in the first five to seven days, so you can easily catch up with all the other people. And what we'll do, Nicolette, we'll make sure to include all the relevant websites and emails in the in the link below, so people can just click on there. And okay, that could be great. Them. So, yeah, Nicolette, thanks so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Um, we'll look forward to chatting on the next, the next episode. Excellent. Thank you for the opportunity to profile the club in this way. Hi, Trevor. Thanks so much for agreeing to be the first guest on the on the first episode of the Birding Life podcast. 
And, you know, just speaking to a couple of people, they'd be really excited to get to spend half an hour just chatting to you. So I really count this as a huge, huge privilege. So thanks, Trevor, for being on the, on the show. Yeah. Hi, Adam. Thanks. Thanks very much for inviting me. It's a great, great uh, honor to be the first guest. I look forward to, to chatting to you. Yeah, so um, obviously for us as South Africans, we've been in lockdown, which I know has been driving some people crazy. So how have you survived lockdown without chasing after rare birds? I see there's a report of that Egyptian vulture. I think it's floating around in Bitbank area at the moment. So how are you managing? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm surviving. Um, obviously, uh, I'm spending quite a bit of time outside in the garden, just trying to look at birds in the garden and see what I can find. I suppose the best part of the lockdown is the fact that everybody else is locked down as well. So there's not that many rare birds being found at the moment. Uh, otherwise, it, it, it could be a lot worse. Um, but it, it is quite tough, particularly at this time of the year. This is uh, the time of the year when one expects a lot of reverse migrants to start turning up and nobody's out there uh, looking for these things. So... Yeah, who knows what's out and about that we're just not finding at the moment or knowing about. There must be at least one mega out there at the moment that nobody knows about. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's more than one. It's terrible. The mind boggles about what could possibly be out there, but I guess uh, it is what it is, and we just have to make the best of the situation. Okay, so right off the bat, what's your life listening on right now? I assume by that you're talking Southern Africa, so that's uh, 934 at the moment. Sure, that's pretty awesome um about halfway there <laughs> and your worldwide list uh I, i'm not sure of the exact number but it's in the early 4600s oh, she's that's that's really really awesome okay so trevor i think most people who know you know you as the cra- as a crazy birder who will do almost anything to get that next special bird you know like uh, you watch that movie the big yeah you kind of fit into the mold of one of those guys we won't say which one um, and you're also the guy that a lot of people know that sends out the rare bird email daily in South Africa. But can you tell us a little bit about yourself besides the fact that you're a birder? What are some things about you that might surprise some people? Well, I suppose most people are very surprised to hear that I have a normal day job as well. I have to, to earn some, some sort of income to go birding. So I'm, I'm a partner in an architectural practice here in Cape Town. Yeah, so that's what I unfortunately have to do to earn a living <laughs> yeah now uh, the company's been going since 2002 so that makes it 18 years old this year and I suppose that's uh, the sort of mundane day-to-day thing is that I have to have to earn a living some way what else uh, I enjoy fast cars that's something a lot of people don't know about me as well and and as a, a younger, more naive, I suppose, and less responsible person, for want of a better term, uh, I had, a, I had a, a whole series of foster cars, which were great for getting to twitches very quickly, but not so wonderful for going off-road and doing all, all that sort of thing. So eventually I came to my senses and moved into the the sort of more suitable vehicle situation. which So now I, I have a 4x4, which I, I use as my normal car. What were, what were some of those cars you, you had at that time? Well, I mean, as a 
the first of the cars, I suppose, I started off with Golfs, you know, the GTIs and things like that. And and then I, I moved on to BMWs, M3s. And I, my last car was a, um, a 5 Series BMW, a 4.5 litre V8 uh, BMW, which was a, sure. a beautiful car to drive. And it was so, so quick, very comfortable and but unfortunately very low slung. So it didn't really help for anything except tar roads. So like you were the low profile, one of the guys that drove around the low profiles and they had, and had a car that made a lot of noise. Yes, yes, yes. Um, my wife will tell you that we, you know, in the good old days when I used to drive these cars and we, we did go off road, she would have to get out of the car and roll even the tiniest little stones out of the road because we couldn't get over them with the spoilers and the low profiles and things like that. It's amazing how bird, birding changes things. I mean, like I used to have, you know, dream of certain cars. Once you get into birding, you like start working at what's the cheapest four by four you can afford. So it changes everything, eh? Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it definitely does. Um, you know, I'm not a, um, a four by four freak if that makes any sense. So I, it's not like I go out on the weekends and drive in the dunes or up uh, rocky mountains or anything like that. that. That doesn't excite me in the least. But it is nice to have a vehicle that if you need the capabilities to get somewhere where a particular bird is, you have it. One thing I read on your website was about the yours and Margaret's, who's your wife's first date. And it was to, as far as it, it looks like, was to Paul Sewage Works. So tell us a little bit about that date. And also about how the two of you met, because Margaret must be an amazing person to to be married to a twitcher like you. <laughs> Just want to say that. <laughs> yeah. So look, Ma- Margaret also has a normal day job. She's actually a quantity surveyor. So we met through work, and we got chatting and what have you. And she was obviously interested in my obsessions, and uh, yeah. So we decided to to see if it would work and you know right off the bat I thought I had to to put her to the test to see if she could survive being with somebody like me so yes first date was to Paul Sewage Works just to set the scene uh, for those who've been there it's a it's one of the the nicest sewage works and that's something only a birder could say that's true um, <laughs> yeah you know it's 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 fairly nicely set out, lawned areas and picnic tables, and it's one of the le- less smelly sewage works as well. Um, so that's why it was decided to go there, break her in on one of those. And uh, yeah, she passed the, the test, and well, we've been together now for, uh, I need to think about this, uh, 17 years. So, you know, right down to even the honeymoon, you know, Margaret wanted to go to a, a tropical island. In, uh, and so her upstart was she selected a few islands and she's got the bird lists together for all those places. And then she put them all in front of me and she said, right, tell me all your lifers on all these various lists. And so I went through them and I gave her what my potential lifer totals were in all the different islands. And she, the Seychelles was the one that had the least potential life. So she said, right, that's where we're going. <laughs> and that's how, that's how our honeymoon destination was decided on the least possible life that I could get. The only way she's going to get your attention for the time of the honeymoon, eh? 
Indeed, indeed. Okay, so let's get into the birding stuff. How did you get into birding? Um, there was something which um, say birder asked on Instagram. And how long have you been birding for? Man, I've I've been interested in natural history and and that for since a very very young age. And um, I suppose it was in the in the late seventies, early eighties, uh, before David Attenborough was really well known. Certainly in South Africa, there was another Brit on TV yeah, who did a series. His name was Gerald Durrell. He did various TV series, thing called Zoo in My Backyard, which I think was one of my early inspirations. And he used to walk out into what was his backyard area and, and go and scratch around and look for all sorts of interesting biodiversity. And that really got my got my interest peaked and so from a very early age I was out in the bush looking at all sorts of things and catching things and bringing them home what have you I think it was just a natural progression to birding and I think my list dates back to my first ticks date back to 1982 so that's yeah whatever 38 years ago that I've now been listing as a birder sure that's a long time eh yeah yeah it's it, it. It is pretty much almost a lifetime. <laughs> what age did you actually, what age was that when you, that you started at? I was going to give your age away a little bit now, but what age did you start burning no, at? No, no, that's fine. Um, I, I would have been nine years old then when I started the list. What was your first bird book? It was a Roberts. There was nothing else available when I started birding. I think soon after I started birding, the first Newman's Field Guide came out. But at the time that I started, uh, it was Roberts 4. Uh, which had come out in, uh, I think, 1978 or something like that. It was still the most current bird book uh, rather than a field guide. And some of the illustrations at that, there was a guy called Norman Lighton, who was one of the illustrators, one of the artists, were, some of the illustrations were terrible. Certainly things have improved over the years since then. But uh, yeah, that was what I started with and then progressed on to Newman's, Whenever that came out, I don't remember in the mid to late eighties. And Sassel, I think only first Sassel only came out in the nineties sometime. And with you being birding for so many years, what changes have you seen in in terms of birding and that type of thing? I mean, for I birded, I've been birding for just under four years. I mean, it would have been almost this idea of like you know you almost had this picture, and I don't want to say this to um, undermine any older folk, but you you know what's this? These old people sitting with binoculars. And that was the idea I've had of birding. And, but I think the birding has changed, maybe through movies like The, the Big Year and that kind of thing. What sort of changes have you seen? Well, gee whiz, there's been lots of changes. Uh, you know, there's been uh, progression in the development of optical equipment, binoculars and scopes and things like that. Uh, obviously, with the advent of digital photography, that's made a huge impression in the, in the birding fraternity. You know, for the first 20 years, I suppose, almost, of, of birding, there were no digital cameras. It was all old-style old slide film. And, you know, you maybe took one or two shots of a particular bird and then had to wait a few weeks to get them back once they'd been developed. And it was an expensive exercise. So digital photography has certainly, certainly changed things. You know, even I see the development of birders. These days, there's a lot of birders that don't even use binoculars or scopes. They, they, they only have cameras. 
So, so from that point of view, there's been a huge change. Then I suppose also the standards of the field guides have changed. They've improved dramatically. There's a lot more information available. And I guess the internet mm. itself and social media has, has had a huge impact on, on birding. You know, the, nowadays you can pretty much find stakeouts for, for anything you want on the net or via social media, just asking the questions and people will be able to tell you. Whereas I suppose when I started, it was, it was a lot of trial and error. You go out and you read up in the book about what the preferred habitats are, and then you see if you can find that and you just kind of go in search and, of the birds potentially yourself and also trying to work out IDs. A lot of the stuff, I'm sure in the early days I, would, I was getting wrong, but I had, to, I had to work through most of it myself. There, there wasn't a quick thing I could WhatsApp somebody photos or something like that and get some feedback. It, a lot of it was a, a very steep learning curve on one's own in the early days. You know, I think nowadays it's quite easy to be a lazy birder and to see a bird and to not really try and figure out what it is, but just send it to somebody who knows better. And I think what it possibly does in the long run, it just, it actually, it doesn't grow you as a birder. So probably the journey you've been on has probably got you to the place, the place where you are in terms of birding. So I think it, it was a good, was a good thing to be able to actually have to go through as much as it might've been a challenge, I think. Yes, no, no, I agree 100% that it, it certainly taught me about how to look at birds and, and what to take note of in the field. And, and I think a lot of that art has been lost. You know, people don't know how to look at birds in the field. They don't know how to observe behavior. They, they don't have a, a proper feel for habitat um, and things like that. I, I mean, that's a very general comment. There are lots of very good birders out there that know all that stuff. But a, a lot of the newer birders, because things are so easy, are, are, have lost out on those early developmental stages of birding. And it's, it's just much easier now to, to get a photo and throw it on social media somewhere and uh, ask people for feedback on what the particular bird is. Birds by Calvin asks, and maybe it's a good time to ask the question, is how do you plan a birding outing to maximize your list, to maximize your time? Because you've spoken about how we have technology, which you, you can obviously utilize. And how would you plan a, an outing if you were to go somewhere, maybe just even for a normal day's birding? How do you maximize your time? You know, on a normal day's birding, I, I wouldn't really go out with the intention to, have, to build a massive list for the day. I generally go out birding just to cover a habitat or work work a particular area looking for whatever birds I, I might be looking for. So on a day trip locally, getting a massive list wouldn't be first and foremost on my on my mind at all. You know, a lot of the time I spend because I'm based in Cape Town, I spend on the coast looking at waders or gulls, terns. And so my intention would be going to look for something odd in amongst them. So I, I could spend four or five hours scanning through waiter flocks sure. um, and, you know, and, and not come away with a massive overall species list for the day. But I've worked the, the waiter flocks well and, 
a few times I'll be lucky and I'll actually find a, a rarity in amongst them. But yeah, you know, so I, I will just get into whatever it is that I'm doing and, and bird that way. If I'm doing a, a big day or a big year challenge or something like that, then obviously maximizing the list is of vital importance. And then it's all about covering as, as many varied habitats as possible, knowing what times of the day certain birds are most active to try and improve your chances of finding them, and that sort of thing. But yeah, on, on a normal day-to-day -day basis, the list is kind of secondary to the just being out there, enjoying the birds, getting to getting to know the birds better because we never stop learning every day that we're out in the field. We're always learning just the, you know, little things like even a common bird, you'll learn, you'll, you'll find something with a, an, an odd variation that you've never seen before, whether it's in the plumage or the call or whatever. And it's something that you, you then store in your memory bank for, for future. Yeah. Then a Southern African photographer asked the question, which is another great question. What is your favorite biome or terrain to burden? Yeah, that's also a difficult one because I, I look, I, I'm based in Cape Town, so we don't have a, a huge variety. A, a lot of the the area is is Fanebost and various forms of Fanebost, Coastal Strandfeltum and Fontaine Fanebost or, or what have you. But I, I particularly enjoy uh, waders and seabirds. So I spend a lot of time at wetlands look, looking for waders. And uh, I obviously spend a lot of time out at sea looking at seabirds as well. On a, on a more general level across Southern Africa, wow, there's so many. Uh, you know, the, the savannah areas are, are fantastic areas to go birding in. And obviously there's the coastal forests, which are wonderful. Montane forest. I, I enjoy deserts uh, every now and again. It just depends on, on where I am. I've... I will always just try and make the most of wherever I am in terms of enjoying the birding. Just following you on social media, I think people might think that 90% of your birding is, if you read your reports, is almost chasing after rare birds. But I think majority of your birding is just birding your local patch. Yeah, yeah. Twitch-wise, I mean, this year we're, we're in... April, although I've done nothing in April, obviously, like the rest of the country. But I mean, I've, I've, I've had two twitches this year, uh, both to the Eastern Cape. So it's not like I get that many opportunities that I, I race off to go and twitch things. Generally, I'm just spending a lot of time out in the field, uh, burning and, and learning as I go along. And yeah, I suppose maybe... 30% if that of my burning is, is actual twitching. Yeah, I far prefer actually finding my own rarities than, mm. than going to twitch other people's rarities. I remember a, a story a few years ago, the Malagasy Pond here in Shadup. I think it was at Pinda, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember exactly. One of the private reserves about four yes. north of Durban. And I remember firstly when they, when they first you know, when it first showed up, you had to Patagon uh, the safari vehicle, and I don't have the I don't have the money for that, so I was uh, kind of waited and waited, and then they I think the last two weekends they they said okay they're going to take people out for free because they're gonna, they're not going to allow people to keep on looking for this going going out to twitch it anymore, and I remember telling the people at work we were going to be leaving at half past one in the morning to go and see this bird. It was quite crazy. We left at half past one. 
and we got back, I think, after nine that night. And people looked to me like I was totally insane. I mean, how the heck are you going to drive for at an unearthly hour to chase after one bird? You know, I, I think, you know, what, what you would be, you'd be classed as what many people would be called uh, a twitcher. Firstly, what does that term mean? And maybe trial plus understand there might be someone listening to this who's not a birder. What is the thrill behind chasing after a special bird? What, what, what makes it awesome to do? Okay, so twitcher, in theory, means chasing after rare birds. A lot of, a lot of people, especially in mainline media, use the term incorrectly to just refer to general birders or, mm. you know, if, and people will advertise um, certain areas as to Twitch's paradise. If it's got, you know, if it's got some sort after resident species. So, you know, places that have maybe Narina trogans or mm. pals fishing owls, etc. But that's not really what a Twitcher is. A Twitcher is somebody who's chasing after uh, rarities and, and rarities are effectively birds that are occurring in an area where they're not meant to be. So the, it, it originates from back in the late fifties in the UK. And there were two well-known British birders that used to race off after rare, rarities that turned up around the UK on a, on a matchless motorbike. And because it was so cold, they would end up shivering was particularly the one guy on the back would end up shivering by the time they arrived wherever the bird was. And that's where the, the, the phrase going on a twitch was coined. As to the, the thrill, I mean, it's very difficult to explain to people, but there's like a serious adrenaline rush that you get when, when you realize this is, is this potential new bird that you could see. And Sometimes it's not even a, a full lifer. It might be, you know, because people keep various lists. There's the Southern African list or the provincial list or, or whatever the case may be. And so twitching can, doesn't have to be chasing, you know, run across the country or the sub-region. It could be literally chasing within your province or if you are keeping a particular local patch list, it could be, chasing to your local patch to go and see a bird that somebody else has found there, which you've never seen there before. So, I mean, there's a distinct link between listing and, and twitching, obviously. And I think it's the, the, the excitement of adding a new bird to a particular list. And obviously, if it's a full life and the excitement of seeing a bird for the first time, that's always very special. And I, th I think another part of it that is often underplayed is the, the whole social side of it mm. because obviously there's, there's, when you arrive there's there's often a lot of other birders there and then you know once everybody's seen the bird and enjoyed the bird then it becomes a social event and everybody's chatting and you start reminiscing about previous birding activities or, or lifers or whatever the case may be so there's a lot of the social side involved as well. I think that's what people don't always get from the outside. I, I think one thing that I love about birding is the is the birding community. It's a great community to be a part of. I mean, just the people I've got to know. It's 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 really great. I think that's one of the one of the best parts about birding. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know it's it's not a it's not a, a loner hobby, <laughs> as it were. Um, I mean, you can obviously go birding on on your own, but one of the one of the 
nicest things about birding is being able to share whatever you find with others and, and get to experience their excitement when, when they see whatever bird as well. Uh, I think that the whole sharing side of it is, is a, a major part of the attraction of birding. I agree. I just, just a funny story. When I went, we went to see that Malagasy pond here and I've probably been birding for about a year. We went up and we saw the Malagasy pond and it was quite, it's going to sound weird. I know some birders might shoot me down for this, but it was, it was, it wasn't the most exciting experience. We literally stopped in. There was the bird. I think there was no thrill involved uh, uh, attached to it. We ended up, they took us around the reserve a bit and we parked somewhere and I think for me, the bird of the day was actually a gorgeous bush truck. It was the it was a lifer for me. And yeah. everyone is going off the Malagasy, Malagasy pond here. And for me, the bird of the day was the gorgeous bush truck. It's still one of my favorite birds. So, you know, it's, I think it's not just like you said, it's not just the, the birds you get to see. It's the people you get to see. It's the other birds that you get to see. And it's just the whole experience is amazing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, I mean, and another part of, 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 of it is that it gets you to a lot of places that many ordinary non-birders wouldn't go to. Mm. Gets you to see a lot of the country um, and some incredible parts of the country. Yeah, a lot of uh, people who don't have, who don't share our interests just go on living a normal day-to-day life and never get to see those wonderful parts of the country. So you've done a lot of really amazing trips and those of us who have you on Facebook, we yeah, we often are quite jealous about the places you go to. Which is one trip that stands out to you as your favorite memory? Sure. Um, are you talking local or, or international? Now? Well, maybe let's chat about a local, a local trip first. Man, sure. I've done so many local trips. Uh, I suppose my, my first trip into Mozambique was very exciting. That was in 1995. I think... They'd, they'd been having a civil war in Mozambique, and so nobody could go birding in Mozambique for, for many, many years. And they, they called a truce sometime during 1995. Um, I don't remember exactly when. And it was just two or three months later, a group of us decided uh, that we were, we were going to go into Mozambique to go and, um, go and do some birding there. Nobody had been into Mozambique for probably at that stage, maybe 20 years birding wise. So we knew nothing about where to go. We had some very, very old gen on certain areas. And um, it was an incredible trip. It was like a bit of an expedition going in there. One of the first birding groups after the civil war, going to feel our way around certain areas and finding, you know, just some incredible birds, you know, what, white chested leases and East Coast acolytes and green-headed orioles and things, wow. which at that stage, very, very few people had, had seen in Southern Africa because there had just been no, no opportunities to see it. African pitters, just, just sure. some incredible birds. Yeah, that, that certainly ranks right up there as one of my, my most favorite uh, local birding experiences. Sure, quite an adventure. Still, Mozambique's still one place that I really want to go and see. Still haven't got there, but make a plan quite <laughs> soon. And then internationally, which is your favorite international birding destination? It's more of a region than, than, a, than a destination, and it would be the neotropics. So Central and South America, and, and tropical South America, rather. Firstly, the, diver- the pure diversity, the number of species is just incredible. And... 
secondly, you know, birding <clears throat> elsewhere in Africa or in Asia, you, you experience a lot of the same bird families, maybe different species, but it's, but it's similar families. So, so it's all vaguely familiar to you. You know, it's another weaver species or another sunbird species or whatever the case may be. Whereas the neotropics, you've got all these different bird families which don't relate to anything that we're used to in the old world. You know, tanagers and hummingbirds and toucans and just some incredible birds. I think one of, one of my favorite places there is Costa Rica. And just because it's such a comfortable destination to go to, it's quite affordable, a lot of easy birding. You know, a lot of a lot of the the birding in the neotropics is in forests, so it can be quite tough. Uh, forest birding generally is not that easy because you you having to rely a lot on calls and things, and you're spending a lot of time looking up at these little birds high in the canopy. But uh, Costa Rica, I found, was very very well set up for for birders. Just an incredible country to travel in. Friendly people, nice accommodation, good food. Just the whole package was fantastic. I remember reading in Noah Stricker's book about, I hope I'm going to say his name right now, Gunnar Engblom. Is that how you say his name? Yes. Uh, Good night. Uh, yeah, you did, you did a trip with, I think, quite recently, last year or the year before him. Seems like quite an extreme birder. You know, tell us a little bit about, tell, tell us a little bit about him. This was not prepared, so I hope you're not going to get into trouble. But tell us a little bit no, about no, him. No. I just, the, the Nova Stricker, the way he describes him, this is one guy I really want to go birding with. And I know he does a, he has a really cool birding company. That's tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, I know. He's a mad hatter birder. Um, I've, look, I've known Gunnar for, for uh, um, quite a few years. I've, I've birded with him previously in, in Peru. Uh, you know, I've, I've been to Peru three times now. And on this last trip, in fact, I, I birded with him and Noah together. So that was a lot of fun. But so, so Gunnar, if anybody thinks they have birding endurance, the real test is to go birding with Gunnar Englom. Sure. Because that man has more endurance that I've, that I've ever seen on anybody else. He just goes and goes and goes. He doesn't need sleep at all. As, as keen as I am, you know, at some point I just start passing out because I can't keep up with him anymore. Uh, so Gunnar wanted to do this big month in Peru and he invited me along to to join him. And we were just birding, I don't know, 20 hours a day, a day in, day out. And it was a, it was an absolutely crazy trip. On the, on the last day, I remember we drove from Lima, well, the night before, we drove from Lima um, to this town called Paracas, which was about four hours away. We got there at midnight, and then we went to go look for some nightjar, uh, a Chudi's nightjar, which we found out in the desert. Got to bed at about two o'clock in the morning, woke up at five to get onto a pelagic trip, went out to sea, had a nice day out at sea. Well, half a day, we were back by one o'clock or one thirty in the afternoon, grabbed all our stuff, jumped in the car and went into the desert to go and search for a few other species and then drove back to, to Lima because I had to get onto an aeroplane at 7 o'clock that evening or 7.30 that evening. So we just, just made it to the airport in time. 
I got onto the airplane and I flew from Lima into um, Sao Paulo in Brazil. And I arrived at Sao Paulo at 4.30 in the morning. And I got picked up by somebody else who took me birding for the day because I had a, la- a, a full day's layover in Sao Paulo. And got back to the airport at about six or half past six that evening. Got onto the plane in Sao Paulo, took off. And I fell asleep and I woke up as we touched down in Johannesburg, which is, I don't know what it is, eight and a half or nine hour flight. It's the best sleep I've ever had on an airplane. I, I didn't hear a thing. I didn't see a thing on that airplane. I didn't see them coming with the meals or anything like that. I was just so, so dead tired after being with Gunnar for so long that it was just an incredible sleep all the way back from Brazil to South Africa. So that's definitely a guy I want to go birding with sometime. If we can outbird you, I think he's got <laughs> something special. Well, thanks, Trevor. And thanks, everyone, for joining us on episode one of the Birding Life podcast. Be sure to like this episode and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Next time, we'll continue with part two of Trevor's interview. Until next time, be blessed and happy birding.